2: Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. I want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. And here's something I don't mention enough at all, but if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast format, uh, please go leave a review, uh, especially if you're going to leave a positive one. Not so much trolling for the one star thing but you know if you feel like giving a four or five star rating that would be excellent and much appreciated next level right there thank you so much guys okay so as promised i'm gonna do part two volume two however you want to put it of my personal concert chronology Had a lot of fun doing the last episode. Not so much in the editing, uh, but I had a lot of fun just kind of remembering and sharing those stories. Uh, I feel like it's an important thing I should do. And once again, having fun doing it. So, Volume 2 is here. So, let's just get to it. So, we only talked about four shows on the last episode. You know, because I I like to play all the opening acts too if I saw them. And or if I liked them. There's probably going to be some exceptions where I don't play the opening acts as time goes on but uh, you will thank me for that later. But on to this one, the fifth show I ever went to, and this was a big one, this was the show of the year, arguably, but I don't think too arguably, was the one-time only, and still one-time only, co headline stadium show between Guns N' Roses and Metallica. The two biggest bands in the entire world at that point were Guns N' Roses and Metallica, even more so than Nirvana, even though they had just taken off. Which uh, I found out Nirvana was actually asked to be the third band on the bill at one point. Maybe not initially, but I think in the last leg or so. But it didn't happen. Can you imagine if that had happened? People would still be bragging about that to this day. And those that booed and threw things at Nirvana would be bragging that they saw him still. (laughs) Yeah, that would have happened too, I I guarantee you but the ones who got the stuff thrown at them that were the opener during this particular show when I saw them was, of course, a favorite of both headline bands, Faith No More. And this was my first time seeing Faith No More, and I was a big fan, still a big fan. I, like so many other people, like 99% of their fan base came in during the big radio and MTV push for the real thing, and of course the song Epic wound up buying that on cassette. Uh, still one of my favorite albums of all time. So uh, by the time 92 rolled around, they put out their uh, quote-unquote artistic follow-up, Angel Dust, and to some that's their best album ever. I think it's definitely one of their best for sure, and it was uh, definitely a a, a kind of a quasi-commercial flop. I recently read an article about this album, I think in Classic Rock Magazine, (laughs) and one of the band members' was quote as saying when they did the table listen, which is when you go into the record label and play the finished mixed-down product all the way through, like, during a lunch or something, you know, to get, get an idea of, like, you know, executives taking notes, like, what's a single and then whatever, or maybe sequencing, what have you. Uh, so apparently at the table listen, somebody just kind of casually said out loud, gee, I hope you guys didn't buy any houses. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's how uh, well received, at least overall commercially, Angel Dust was. But it was an artistic triumph and one of the great albums of the 90s that you should check out for sure. Uh, but yeah, fast forwarding to me seeing them open for Guns N' Roses and Metallica. Uh, by the way, just uh, for the record, at Texas Stadium in Irving, Texas, where the Cowboys used to play, it's no longer there. It's been demolished. If you drove by it on the freeway now, you would never know something was ever there that had that kind of history to it. But uh, yeah, that happened. That was the first time I'd ever been in that stadium. I'd actually wind up playing the grounds of that stadium years later when I was in high school, uh, drumline and band and all that stuff. The one time our football team went to the regional playoffs. One time. The whole time I was there. And we got eliminated in the first round, but we got to play at Texas Stadium and we did our halftime show on that ground there. And I thought that was so freaking cool. Uh, Still have a great memory of that. So let's just get into the first song here. Of course, we're going to go in order of the day. This is Faith No More and a live version from 1992 of We Care A Lot. version of we care a lot by faith no more kicking off the show here this volume two of my concert chronology and that's not even the best live performance that i've heard of we care a lot but i, I played that one for a particular reason the reason being is because mike patton definitely sounds like he has just had it on that track uh, the band of course plays great and i'm a big mike patton fan but even at the show we went to it was just you just had that feeling that he was not having it and at one point and the reason i also played we care a lot is that i specifically remember during faith no more set that you know i guess people weren't really responding to the new material so whenever they kicked off we care a lot mike Patton egged on the people to throw their garbage at him so he stood right there on the little catwalk area and people started throwing their empty paper cups that used to have beer in them and by the time they probably got to about the end of the first verse of We Care A Lot, he was up to his kneecaps in paper cups. So I do remember that specifically. That was quite a visual. Uh, So he was definitely antagonizing the crowd uh, because they weren't really responding all that great. Uh, Very unfortunate because they played their butts off that day, but like I said, even at that young age, you could tell that Mike Patton was not mailing it in, but he was definitely in a mood and you know honestly i guess i don't blame them. so uh, moving on to the metallica set and uh, let's just kind of paint the picture here by this point in the day i think faith no more went on probably about one or two in the afternoon that sounds about right probably more like one uh, so you know the place wasn't even packed not even remotely at this point Plus, the the day before, and uh, this is a Sunday, I believe, so uh, the day before that, uh, down the street in Dallas, at a place that I talked about a lot on Volume 1, the Starplex, Lollapalooza 1992 was also there. So back-to-back days and nights, you had Lollapalooza 92 and then the GNR Metallica Stadium show the next day in the same town. It was crazy. It was Labor Day weekend, so I saw this show on a Sunday, I remember, and then we had the Monday off, and then I went back to school on Tuesday. But I do know someone that went to both shows those two days in a row, and that's Randy Brown of the uh, Synaptic Audio Transmissions podcast here on cnjradio.com. I was talking with him earlier today, and I asked the question, so I heard that Kirk Hammett of Metallica was actually at Lollapalooza 92. Not only that, but apparently he jumped up on stage with Ministry that day, and they did a cover of Black Sabbath Supernow, which... Al Jorgensen covered As A Thousand Homo DJs along with Trent Reznor, which I'm sure you've heard that track. It's on the uh, Black Sabbath tribute album, Nativity in Black. It's also on a 12-inch single. So I asked him if that was true, because I think I remember reading that in a paper. So my brain did retain that information so I asked him about it and he definitely confirmed that Kirk Hammett was there and yes in fact he did play on SuperNout with Ministry not only that but apparently Jim Martin from Faith No More also went up and played during Supernoun so man what a moment that was I'm sure jealous that Randy saw that I asked him if he slept in a van overnight between shows he was 22 at the time and he was like no actually I went home <laughs> but he's like we had the energy to do that so I was like good for you dude good for you He also uh, gave me some bonus stuff about the Ministry set that Casey from Rigor Mortis was actually on guitar that day. And uh, yeah, he said that was insane. And then during Ministries So What, not Metallica So What, but Ministries So What, Chris Cornell also came and started singing lead on that. Kim Thale... Also might have been on stage during supernout I mean, there's all this info swimming through my head, but yeah, he said the place was packed. He said Mickey from Lush actually uh, stage dove uh, during that set, and there was a parting of the sea, so she landed face first on the seats, busting her face open and had to be carried out by the medical staff. Man, (laughs) that sounds like a day. And that was just one set during Lollapalooza 92. So anyway, back to the show that I was at, actually. Like I said, uh, Faith No More got out of there probably about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Probably, maybe played an hour, somewhere around that. Definitely just, besides We Care A Lot, it was just all stuff from the real thing. And it was heavy on Angel Dust material as well. But I did enjoy the set quite a bit. And as of this date, that's still the only time I've seen Faith No More live. That's pretty embarrassing for someone like me, but hopefully I'll rectify that, and the next time they come through Dallas, I'll actually get to see them again. That would be nice. But moving on to Metallica. I think Metallica went on probably around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I didn't get to see Metallica on the initial Black Album tour, uh, or else obviously I would have talked about it by now. But uh, it was weird because, you know, that, that show was in the round, and while that probably would have been an interesting thing to do at a show like this... I think that actually would have been cool because then that would have put Guns N' Roses in the round because uh, it would have been stupid to have a band play in the round then on the other side of the stadium by the end of the night so I think that's kind of a missed opportunity for Guns N' Roses not to play in the round on the stadium tour but that's just me that's just my opinion so like I guess Metallica went on about three o'clock in the afternoon they played damn near three hours And yes, this was a uh, post-Montreal show, which means, for those of you who don't know, James Hetfield got into an onstage accident. He was standing uh, right under the pyro that was coming out of the floor uh, during Fade to Black, and that was definitely kind of the kickoff of the Montreal riot for that particular tour. Uh, So, the infamous story, Axel didn't finish his set either that night, so the place rioted, and it was a big mess. Yeah, that happened, so... James Hetfield is in a cast Uh, he cannot play guitar so James Hetfield is your lead vocalist slash frontman for the night sans guitar and then there uh, his guitar tech John Marshall from Metal Church actually playing rhythm guitar for this leg of the tour so I got to see one of those unique shows where James Hetfield is the frontman lead singer with no guitar there's some decent YouTube footage of that I think from Oakland If you go look it up and you can actually see that show and kind of see how weird it looks to see James just running around with the microphone kind of looking lost on stage without his guitar, they say it's like losing an arm. It kind of is, isn't it? So, well, I've seen a handful of Metallica shows and the great thing about Metallica is that they always mix it up. You know, they might pretty much stick to the same set list on the whole tour, but tour by tour, they do try to mix it up quite a bit and I do appreciate them for that. So whenever it comes time for me to talk about a Metallica show. I'll probably throw in like, oh, here's a random song from the set list that they don't play very often, and here's a unique one that I got to see. Uh, So probably not a ton of surprises for the hardcore fan. I would say Last Caress is a rarity in a sense. They don't seem to play that one too much, especially anymore, but that was definitely part of the encore. The encore is weird because I'm looking at it on paper here on setlist.fm. So the encore is Nothing Else Matters, (laughs) then Am I Evil?, then Last Caress, and then One. So, to me, playing Am I Evil like After Nothing Else Matters is a little weird. And, of course, they close with Inner Sandman. I'd say the two biggest obscure songs that they played that day uh, was of Wolf and Man, which I don't think they played too much on the Black album tour. I could be wrong about that, but it doesn't seem like they did. And the shortest straw from Man, Justice for All. That's a, that was definitely the rarity, I think, of the whole day. So yeah, an enjoyable set list uh, that went off without a hitch. Like I said, despite the whole weirdness with James Hetfield. Uh, so I enjoyed the show. Uh, the second song they played that day, still my favorite song from that entire lineup right there, with the Jason Newstead lineup, because I love when Jason comes in during the course on here. And I know I've played this on the show before, this particular version, but I gotta play it again, because it's just so good. Uh, so here you go. This one's a killer right here. Here's a live version from the Black Album Tour of Harvester of Sorrow. We all came to the right place. Now we're doing some shit uh, from the And Justice For All album. And I know you guys are ready to sing loud as a motherfucker.
3: so uh, no worries here. You're going to put your eyeballs on Jason, because he's going to show you what the fuck to do here. <laughs>
2: live version that's actually from life ship binge and purge by the way in case you were curious that was harvester of sorrow by metallica that version as good as the studio version is even though it doesn't have any base on it obviously i'm in that camp of not a big fan of injustice for all because this the mix is terrible and it's really hard for me to get past it but the live version of that just kills it's so good it's way better than the studio version that's my opinion all right So, before we get to Guns N' Roses here, it wasn't the show that I saw the year before at the Starplex as far as, like, the crowd getting all ornery and stuff like that, a near riot breaking out. That didn't really happen today because, first of all, now we're into about four hours of live music, everybody's just kind of hanging out, it's basically just an extended Labor Day weekend party, so, uh, you know, everybody's pretty chill, which is weird because there's, like, way more people at this show. Then there was the Starflex show, because the Starflex show was like, you know, 20,000 plus. For real, for real. And this one's Texas Stadium. So I would have to say a sold-out Texas Stadium with that stage. You know, probably about sixty to 70,000 people. Probably that, around there. So we, even with all those people, I never felt unsafe. It was, it was really weird. So I, I felt like I was in trouble at the show the year before. But not this one. And also, I wasn't by myself. Uh, I went with uh, my good friend Jason and his brother Charles. We all went out. And I, I guess Charles picked up the tickets in advance or something like that. Or we might have even gotten them at Texas Tickets... Just across the street from the stadium before the show. Uh, Something to that effect. But yeah, you know, so I had them with me. So, and... We were, like, at a perfect place in the stadium as far as, like, we were kind of off to the left, uh, not upper balcony, but lower balcony, and, uh, like, right next to the restrooms, which is great. That That's where you want to be in a stadium, and, yeah, speaking of that, speaking of the restrooms, since I brought it up, that was definitely the first time I ever witnessed this, probably because I've never been to a football game ever in a stadium, and I still think that's the case. I don't think I have been. So yeah uh you know if there's a line just even a small line apparently with the uh, hardcore labor day weekend partiers and beer drinkers and hellraisers, even if there's like a one person out of the stall they will piss in the sink <laughs> that is the thing i'm sure that hasn't changed much uh but maybe that's why bathroom attendants are a thing now so thanks guys god i hate bathroom attendants i, I mean i don't hate them but I'm, I'm done with it it's enough already you know like, you like you you won't even go wash your hands because you don't want to have to deal with not tipping them that's how i feel about it anyway so yeah pissing in the sink aside <laughs> um you know much like uh, the show the year before uh, it's gonna be a m- long hard minute before guns N' roses come on stage because first of all you know that axel's gonna wait till it gets dark and summertime in texas even right towards the end of summer going into labor day here sun's not setting till about 9 p.m our time so yeah so metallica probably leaves the stage about six o'clock and Guns N' Roses probably doesn't go on until about 9 or 9 30 at that point so by that time we've had a nice long sit our butts are numb I think about an hour before Guns N' Roses came out they even did the fucking wave (laughs) that was my first wave yeah I know I know waves are lame but still you know it was an interesting visual so also unlike the Guns N' Roses show the year before me This was a a different Guns N' Roses than even the one that I saw the year before. I saw Izzy Stradlin on the Use Your Illusion tour, because it was early on in the tour. But, you know, apparently by the time the albums came out, or at least it seemed this way, Izzy Stradlin was out of the band, replaced by Gilby Clark of the band kills for thrills and they also brought in like a handful of backup singers uh and also i think they're called the 976 horns if i'm not mistaken they also played a saxophone and stuff like that So background singers horn players uh teddy zigzag andreas was added as a extra keyboard player slash utility percussion man dizzy reed still out there of course I mean, what do we got, 12 people on stage now? Which, uh, you know, I'm not mad about it, but it was very different from the bare bones version that we got at the Starplex show the year before. So it's kinda neat, I got to see like both ends of the Use Your Illusion tour and see how it was from the beginning basically towards the end so looking over the setlist.fm for this particular show they actually do have it wrong as far as the chronological order of the show I specifically remember that when Guns N' Roses came out they played Out To Get Me as their opener so they did that there and I'm pretty sure Mr. Brownstone was the second song so I'm looking at the setlist here and it's, it's slightly out of order uh, for hardcore fans not much in the way of surprises I would say easily the biggest surprise of that show was uh, Attitude so uh, having duff take over vocals for attitude but by that time in the tour he was already doing that a lot it's even i think on the dvd from tokyo and he played it on the pay-per-view concert from paris by the way if anybody has a good dvd boot quality of that paris pay-per-view uh, uh, send it my way or direct message me so, that was a great show. Uh, but, you know, we got the uh, Only Women Bleed thing and Slash solo, and we got the It's Alright intro, the Black Sabbath song before November rain. So, yeah, it, w- it was a good show. No no complaints at all. Axel did seem uh, a lot more mellow than he did at the previous show that I saw. So, what a difference a year makes. Uh, so, yeah, no complaints. It was a solid set. Uh, by that time, we were exhausted, uh, you know, i remember we didn't park directly inside texas stadium i think we did park in the texas tickets parking lot so we must have bought the tickets there uh so yeah still part of a parking pass uh ticket exchange. Uh, But I specifically remember, and I remember this because I'm wearing it as of this recording, uh, the bootleg shirt that I bought outside right under the Loop 12 underpass, uh, which is a big freeway out there in Dallas. I bought this bootleg shirt of this show for $10. And I remember even saying that I was going to buy a shirt when I walked into the place, but man, I did not like those shirts. If anybody's seen them, it's, it is a co-opt, Metallica Guns N' Roses t-shirt. But it's like a squished together, you know, side-by-sides of like the Black Album faces and the Usual Illusion painting on the same front of the shirt. It just looks bad. And this bootleg shirt that I got, and I posted on my Facebook page. Cool-looking shirt. Uh, The design is excellent. It's like a Guns N' Roses skull with like the Metallica snake coming out of it. Kind of like looking like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. So it's it's a kick-ass shirt. I still have it. And I got a photo of it. And I'm wearing it as of this recording. And that's what happens when you lose weight. So apparently uh, the motivation is finally there. (laughs) Lost about 25 pounds post heart attack. So, all right, how you like me now? Okay, getting back to the show. So yeah, I've reviewed this entire epic stadium show right here. So what better way to close out this discussion than with the closer that night? And I do believe it's Guns N' Roses' main closer every time. Here is a live version from around this time frame of Paradise City. All right, there you go. A song, I don't think I would ever play the original on this show because do you ever need to hear the studio version again on a radio show unless you're listening to the album? It just doesn't really make sense anymore to me. And I was all about that song when it first came out. But, man, like I said, I don't ever need to hear it or see the video again. Unless I'm listening to Appetite for Destruction. But I did want to play from that particular tour leg. And that was from Live Era, by the way, the double live CD. I wanted to play something from that era because it's got all the background singers on it. And that's pretty much how I heard it that night. So I tried to do that here on my concert chronology. Get as close to the original that I experienced as humanly possible. I have yet to get any direct audio from any shows that I've been at. But that's that's around the bend. That'll be happening at some point during this series. So... Moving on here. Uh, A little under a year after that was my next show. I was, like I said, pretty much averaging one to two shows a year if I lucked out. But, you know, because you got to get through school. And it seems like all the cool shows were happening on school nights. I know a lot of cool bands came through and it was, you know, school time. So I didn't get to go. Hated it. Hated it. Couldn't wait to get out of school. (laughs) So fast forwarding all the way to July 18th, 1993. This was a big show, and I couldn't believe this bill was happening. When I tell people about this bill, they can't believe it happened. But for a very brief time, this, uh, you know, was a touring bill for the summer of 1993. Headlining was Aerosmith, and opening was Megadeth. Yeah, I think this lasted about half a dozen shows or something like that. Uh, It was a little bit of a to-do at the time. Uh, but Aerosmith going out on their Get a Grip tour, and uh, Megadeth was apparently available, so they called him up and invited him. And I know Dave's an old Aerosmith fan, so of course he'd probably like, yeah. Which is, you know, who knows? You know, you always hear about Dave's ego, but you know, and at that point, Megadeth could have been a headliner and were a headline act. They had already done a headline tour, so I guess this was kind of a bonus, you know, post Countdown to Extinction, good payday, all that kind of stuff. So you know, they came along on the tour didn't work out apparently you know by the time the show started happening i had heard that you know megadeth especially dave of course And when we say megadeth we do mean dave mustaine uh complaining about how much stage space and backline they were given and you know the typical opening act complaints and you know so aerosmith was like okay we'll see you later then <laughs> i think they brought in jackal to uh, finish the tour or something like that uh, later on but I got to see one of the very few Aerosmith Megadeth shows. And I saw it at, of course, the Starplex in Dallas, the aforementioned Starplex shed out here. Uh, like I said, July 18th, 1993, I was super looking forward to this show. It did not disappoint, you know, despite the uh, lack of backline for Megadeth, I thought they sounded good that day. You know, uh, Rest in Peace is one of my favorite albums of all time. And at the time, I kidded myself that I was enjoying the Countdown to Extinction record. Not a big fan of that record. I like three songs on it, Skin of My Teeth, Sweating Bullets, and actually... Atch- in your mouth. I don't have much use for it other than that, but uh, no ashes in your mouth that day. Very disappointing. But, um, you know, I'm a big fan of the Angry Again song, and they did play that uh, on this day, they closed with anarchy in the U.K. Uh, but a nice little gem right here, towards uh you know about three quarters of the way through the set, they busted this one out, and I actually have audio from around this time and this particular lineup. My favorite Megadeth lineup, of course: uh Dave Mustaine, David ellison Marty Friedman, and Nick Menza. One of the best lineups for any band ever assembled. Don't believe me? Go go on YouTube right now. Pause the show. Go on YouTube and type in Megadeth "Ashes in Your Mouth" live. It's a 1992 performance, I think, from England. And you really just have to watch it just to see what kind of next level players they are. It's one of the best live clips you'll ever see. But uh, yeah, do that. And then when you unpause, you're going to enjoy this song right here. Easily the most obscure song of the day right here. A, A nice classic album track from Peace Cells. Here is Megadeth with a live version of The Conjuring. The am obey All right, that was the conjuring live version there by megadeth that's off of the import single for Hangar 18 it's got a couple of good live tracks on there that one and a cool version of hook and mouth so if you're a big fan go look up that single right there and uh yeah like i said i enjoyed megadeth i know they got at least an hour on stage And I gotta say, despite the commercial success, I don't hear a lot of people my age or older really giving it up for Aerosmith from this era. You know, anything post-Pump especially. And not that Get a Grip is a better album than Pump, because it's not. I enjoy Get a Grip for the most part. Yes, it does have too many ballads. Uh, and I think that's a label thing. I think the record label interfered in the album. I even heard that the album got delayed for that reason, the the label didn't hear a lot of commercial songs on there. So, we probably would have gotten a more closer-to-pump kind of album, maybe even raw if the band had had their way on Get a Grip, but they did not, uh, so... But that all being said, and sadly I did not get to see him on the Pump Tour, I wish I could have, I'm sure that was an amazing show, I've seen YouTube footage since then, I'm sure obviously it was even better live, but saw him on Get a Grip, spoiler, saw him twice, but man, I gotta think anybody that talks shit about this era, they were probably still at this show, and I bet they enjoyed the shit out of it, they just talk shit, you know, in retrospect. Maybe you're not a fan of Get a Grip. and That's cool. I can appreciate that. But there are some great tracks on that record. Uh, They played a nice handful of them at this show. You know, especially like stuff like Fever. I think that's a cool track. You know, I don't mind Shut Up and Dance, like that kind of stuff. I think that works totally fine within the setlist. And man, they played according to the (laughs) setlist.fm. They played like 24 songs that night. Not really a bad song in the bunch. I always appreciate hearing Monkey on my back. I know that's just a deep album track from Pump, but it sounds so damn good live. And I'm sure that's got to be a favorite of somebody's in the band because they do play it quite a bit. Uh, but yeah, I, I really enjoy this, man. And at this point, like I said, whether it was Pump or this tour, this is Aerosmith at their peak. As far as the performing live act this is the band at their peak because you know i'm sure they were fun to go see back in the 70s but i've seen footage of those shows and they're a mess like they are just so out of it and you know maybe maybe if i caught them on the toys in the attic or the rocks tour i might have a different opinion about this you know but i wasn't born yet uh, but that being said like you know you watch that footage of like texas jam and all that stuff and they, they just sound horrible they're just done you know it's amazing that they had the comeback that they did and that's uh, those if you watch a clip of uh, in, in 1978 Aerosmith playing in Houston, like at the Summit. You can find this on YouTube. It's a pro shot. So you've got all the sound quality there to help you out. So go watch the Summit Aerosmith 1978, and then go fast forward 10 years after that, 1988, a sober Aerosmith playing in Houston at the Summit, same place, and that 1988 version destroys the 1978 lineup. That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, But yeah, give it up for Aerosmith in the early 90s, because they were on their game. Like, I saw them on the tour after this, and they weren't as good. Uh, They had definitely uh, lost some spark, lost some energy, but, uh, so yeah, I will say that get a grip tour is the last great Aerosmith run. Uh, if there's anybody who are naysayers of this band or just kind of ho-hum people about the band, if they'd have seen this show, they would have been a fan for life. Cause yeah, I kind of am for that reason. Uh, but anyway, there you go. So there's my little Aerosmith diatribe right there, uh, man. And this is still one of my favorite show openers ever. And I do love this song. It's probably one of the best songs, if not the best song, from the Get a Grip album. And you're going to enjoy it now via this live version right here from a little south of Sanity. And, you know, attack it on the intro, too, because you got to have the intro. It's a great build-up right here. So here you go. This is Aerosmith with a live version of Eat the Rich. As a kid that was still playing guitar pretty actively at this point in 1993 i gotta say the two biggest riffs the two songs i had to learn how to play on the guitar that summer easily was big gun by acdc and eat the rich by aerosmith those are killer riffs right there so still love eat the rich hope you enjoyed that that was my experience of going to see aerosmith with megadeth as their opener Like I said, Aerosmith will be back on the next installment of the Concert Chronology. It probably won't be the next episode, but I'll be doing it sooner than later. Uh, I think probably one of the other more fun songs that they played that day as well is that I do specifically remember that they played Big Ten-Inch Record that night, so I quite enjoyed that. I was already a big fan of the Toys in the Attic album by them. All right, moving on to the next show. Once again, averaging about one a year now again at this point. I gotta fast forward all the way to June 25th, 1994. Once again, the Starplex in Dallas, the big outdoor shed. And this was my show of the summer. I think it's probably my only show of the summer. Maybe I'm wrong, but yeah, this one was a big one for me. I couldn't wait for this show to happen. It got announced sometime in the spring, and this is a really... Interesting, And by interesting, I mean weird lineup right here. This was basically a radio show for our local rock station, uh, 97.1 The Eagle, which is a terrible station now because, you know, that's what uh, Clear Channel slash iHeartRadio has done with Terrestrial Radio. But at the time, they were the shit. And Dallas Radio was really healthy for rock and roll music at this time. Uh, The KNOM was killing it with the Twisted Kick show. Z-Rock was still on the air. Oh my god, yes, Z-Rock. And The Eagle was uh really uh, i think because of the z-rock competition the eagle was really killing it as well uh, but they announced this crazy ass show for late June at the Starplex. And it's really crazy to think that this was the number one priority for a rock radio station when I tell you what the lineup is here. So, opening up the show, the very first act was Stuttering John. Yeah, Stuttering John from The Howard Stern Show. He put out a couple of music CDs in the 90s, and, you know, I'll I'll get back to that album in a second. Uh, Then after Stuttering John was Typo Negative, and then after them was King's X, and then headlining the whole day... At the end of the night, Motley Crue, the John Karabi Motley Crue. Yes, of course, because this is 1994 after all. So I'm already a huge Motley Crue fan. I was the uh, fan that did not take sides in the whole breakup thing, uh, much like I did with Van Halen for the most part. I did stick with both camps. Uh, you know, because I was like, hey, more music for me. So I loved Vince Neal's Exposed album, and I loved the John Karabi Motley album. I was happy to get two cool records out of this whole thing, so I was fine with it. You know, if if I had a chance to go see Vince when he came through with Van Halen uh, back when he was doing Exposed, I would have done it. Uh, I wish I could have gone to that show. I regret that one for sure. I missed that. I think that was, uh, I think that was later on this summer here in 93 or maybe possibly in 92. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think live right here right now was 93. Anyway. Back to this show. This is a crazy, wacky ass show. And yes, this is the one we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode here. <laughs> You're like, but Joey, we only have four songs. So I'll explain in a minute. So, yeah, getting back to uh, Stuttering John and. I gotta say like you know obviously this album and, and john's record contract with atlantic would have never happened had he not been on the howard stern show That that's obvious but i gotta say i think he put out a pretty damn good record uh, it's very 90s sounding at times a little bit of classic rock but mostly like a 90s heavy hard rock slash alternative kind of thing there's some nirvana leanings here and there but i think he came up with some good stuff like i said not terribly original But I still enjoy listening to the songs, especially when they come up on the shuffle. It's always like a a nice little, oh, hey, yeah, that was a good record. So it's one of those things. So if you've never heard the self-titled Stuttering John record, I would definitely recommend at least giving it a once-around. So, yeah, I don't think it sold a whole lot of records. And the album cover's terrible. I mean, there's, you know, it was just marketed terribly. The I'll Talk My Way Out of It video was great, but it looks like they shot it for five bucks. But go look up that video, the I'll Talk My Way Out of It Stuttering John video one of the funniest videos you'll ever see uh but yeah since uh, you know you've probably heard that song maybe via the airhead soundtrack or something like that i'm gonna play something else here this was the uh, first song that he played that day as i was walking in they had just gone on stage and this was uh, the opener on the album and the first song they played that day this is get off my lawn <laughs> All right, there you go. That was Stuttering John with Get Off My Lawn from the self-titled Stuttering John album from 1994. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you go back and check out that record, even if you never have before, or if you haven't heard it and. In- 25 years plus all right and uh, speaking of john i i didn't quite get across the point how huge i was into the howard stern show at this time this was like to me the peak years of the show the early 90s into the mid 90s uh, back when howard was still hungry and you know it was just just a fun show and john was a big part of that and so right after his set they had announced uh, i think in advance that he'd be doing a signing meet and greet over in the tents outside the shed area by the concession stands and stuff like that so I rushed over there because I really wanted to meet John. I didn't get a picture with him, but I did get to meet him. I didn't bring my camera with me. It was at that time, nobody was really carrying cameras. I'm sure a few were, but I didn't have one. I, I did get an autographed, uh, like, kind of like generic mat that the Eagle had out, with paper things, you know, cardboard, paper things. So I got that autograph. I still have it somewhere. And if you're not aware, Stuttering John's bit was you know between the writers and himself they invented the uncomfortable red carpet questions where you go up to a celebrity and you ask him a really crazy question probably an offensive one on top of that or a sexual one and watch him squirm or watch him react violently or something but uh they invented that shit and i loved i looked forward to the stuttering john interviews to show up on the show because i never failed to break me up even if john wasn't funny during the interview. Something would go wrong, and Howard would yell at him. It was just some of the best radio ever. So, you know, I'm going up there, and I'm a wise ass. I'm all of uh, 15, 16 years old at this time. I think around 15, actually. And I'm excited to meet John because he's a radio hero of mine. And, you know, I was like, oh, I'm going to get a Stuttering John question ready for for Stuttering John, so... (laughs) You know i'm waiting a little bit in line here and you know at first i shook his hand told him i was a big fan or a big 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 big, big fan as he would always say and also here, here's something random during his live set prior to the closer i'll talk my way out of it they did a cover of the theme from jesus christ superstar like a straight cover of it so i was like huh that's interesting because i was aware of that song at the time but uh so that was the thing that sparked my stuttering john question that i had ready for him so i had one and a follow-up so of course i go up to john and i give him a very hacky uh question of hey are you guys gonna cover talking about my generation you know he did a polite chuckle at that one and uh, he goes oh yeah we're thinking about it And you know, i was like yeah right you know uh even after i was like yeah right and then of course my follow-up was uh you're gonna cover but but baby you just ain't seen nothing yet so yeah that was uh that was my stuttering john experience i got to throw some questions at him so god i wish i i mean there was no way i would have had to have a handle because i didn't have one i wish i would have taped it though uh but yeah, the bonus which um I guess they announced this in advance, but I, you know, I'm just kind of remembering this and this is actually going to lead to a audible right here on my part. So in the same autograph tent as you're going through the line, uh there's not one, but two people in there to meet. And the second person in question was not there to perform that day. So they were not on the bill, but they were there doing basically like an autograph, you know, circuit, you know, I'm sure he was there playing nice with the radio station to get some spins for his latest single and man I gotta tell you like still this is the only time I've met this gentleman and I was very very happy and very scared to meet this man but uh, right there at the end of the tent was Mr. Bruce Dickinson yes Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden Bruce had just gone out on his own as a solo artist, full-time, and he was out doing a promotional tour of some sort, and Tears of the Dragon was the single at the time. I, To this day, I thank the Eagle for having Bruce Dickinson out there, and for actually giving Tears of the Dragon uh, some healthy spins out there in the summer of 1994, and uh, that's how I got to meet him. And of course, everybody, I could I could hear everybody talking to him before I got to him, and everybody asked him the same shit about, Are you go back to Maiden, he was like, oh no, no, no 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 not really no you know so of course he would five years later but at the time he was like no i'm doing this new thing and so i didn't have much to say to him i just you know told him i was a big fan i told him i loved tears of the dragon and that i'd be picking up the new album balls to picasso and he was really nice shook my hand i didn't see him shake all the other guys hands so uh, that was really cool and i got an autograph on one of those generic sheets separately of course separately <laughs> But yeah, I still have that as well. So yeah, this is going to be the bonus cut of this episode. I threw one at you on volume one. So why not? It was at the show and I got to meet fucking Bruce Dickinson. So here you go. You're going to enjoy this great epic song right here. This is Tears of the Dragon. there your bonus cut for this episode right here on volume two of the concert chronology here on rock strikes 10 that was the mighty iconic one of the greats of all time bruce dickinson with tears of the dragon from the album balls to picasso go check out his solo material if you haven't given it a chance it's one thing if you're a maiden fan but man this is one of the best solo episodes outputs out there as far as someone that left a big band and had a career on his own i mean it wasn't big here in the states but that doesn't mean it wasn't big all over the world because it was sold records played stadiums all over the world and uh there you go yeah the great bruce dickinson loved that guy and he was an absolute gentleman that day moving on here as per mentioned when i started to talk about this wacky ass crazy radio bill here and uh None of these acts so far were actually on the Motley Tour, uh, just the band that's going to play after this band. Uh, our Brooklyn upstarts at the time, typo negative, even though this was their second full-length album. It took to their second album and, you know, basically like a quote-unquote live, which actually was a re-recording of their first album. So this is their third album in my opinion, Bloody Kisses. And this is the one that set it off for them. It's still a very unlikely commercial success story, but it just worked at the time. And Typo Negative really resonated with all of the people that I thought were my friends around me, at least. So I took to Typo for that reason. I wanted to be cool uh, right there. But I did eventually really start to enjoy the band almost not much so on bloody kisses even though i love bloody kisses now but it was really the october Rust down that really put it over the top for me but uh, i did get a chance to see typo negative right here on the bloody kisses tour during this crazy crazy show back in june of 1994 and uh, much like if typo is an opener or a middle feature act of some way uh, there's not a whole lot of songs i specifically remember that they played four songs that day which did take up about 45 minutes to be fair Uh, because that's just how they roll and going back to check on the setlist.fm site it all came back to him like yep this was the order of songs that they played here that day so the one they kicked off with right here uh was this one too late frozen
4: Play for late,
2: there you go some typo negative for you from the bloody kisses album that was too late colon frozen all right uh, but yeah i hope you enjoyed that that was one of my first impressions of the band so i was just like how many songs was that and it turns out it was one song uh, but yeah that's okay uh, as we go on here we've got two more acts to talk about from this same show and after typo negative was quasi local boys king's x they are about four hours down the road from Katy, Texas, slash Houston, Texas. And, you know, I definitely knew about King's X. I was aware of them since 1990, and their breakthrough Faith, Hope, Love, which, you know, I guess I had remembered seeing them on Headbangers Ball prior to that. But, of course, the huge It's Love single, you know, set it off for a lot of people. I think a lot of people that never even bought another album by them bought the Faith, Hope, Love album. So, that's how I was really first made aware of them overall, like, hearing an album top to bottom. But then the one after that the self-titled king's x i remember seeing the black flag video and the song black flag not the band uh king's x black flag on headbangers ball and the song didn't really resonate with me so i didn't really give that record a chance of course i like that record now but you know in 94 they put out the dogman record and i think for all the king's x fans that i know They seem to cite this album as their favorite album, and I always thought it was insane for the longest time because this was and still is my favorite King's X record, but apparently that is the thing. So I I just think it's their best overall album. It's, It's not too proggy. Not too jammy. The songs are there. The performances are great. Doug, always a great singer. I mean, Doug Pinnock's one of the great singers of all time. I definitely learned that on that day because it's just that weird irony. Titan Tabor sings the lead vocals on It's Love for the most part. So, Doug Pinnock is really the lead singer of the band. And so, that probably blew some people away when they first went to go see him live. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I remember specifically, It just walked out on stage like no fanfare and they just plugged in and just slammed right into this song. The title track from the album Dog Man. That was a live version right there from Kings X. I couldn't find anything from that era. So that's from a little bit later era, like early 2000s. But still, I hope you enjoyed that. What's not to enjoy, right? Uh, Yeah, they really won me over that day. I became a fan, a true fan of the band that day. And I remember, you know, when they did Over My Head. And there's that big uh, sermon at the end by Doug. Uh, A Pretty good idea of what I saw that day. If you go find the set list... They did at Woodstock 94 by the end of this summer. Uh, go look that up. That's pretty much what I saw that day, so recommended for sure. Uh, but now it was time for the main event, Motley Crew coming out. And, you know, I don't know when they realized that this tour was a dud, but it seems like they drew pretty well out here in Dallas. The radio station did a great job of promoting the show, so it didn't seem like a failure being at the show. So even throughout the summer, I thought that this was a big success, the whole John Karabi thing. Uh, but, of course, uh, later on you find out that it wasn't. A lot of other cities, not as well attended. Uh, but I was like, man, probably about 20th row or something like that. I had a blast. I thought the show was excellent. Uh, Motley was just insane. I, Like I said, it was the first time I ever saw him. This is the first time I was old enough to see him. So yeah, if you're a fan of the 94 Karabi album and also the classic older Vince stuff, this is like one of your ultimate Motley set lists. And I rarely do this, and I won't do it too much on these Chronology episodes. But I got to read you the whole set list here. I mean, it's something else. A lot of people didn't see this show, so I figured it's okay just to talk about it. So here's the set list. Hooligans Holiday, Live Wire, Shout the Devil, Wild Side, Power to the Music, Smoke the Sky, Uncle Jack, Tommy Lee drum solo, Doctor Feelgood, Misunderstood, Kickstart My Heart, and then it's kind of like I guess the first encore in a way. They all kind of get uh, right next to each other in the front. They do like an acoustic session and a, you know a small drum kit and acoustic guitars. And so here is that part of the show: Home Sweet Home, Beatles cover of Revolution. That was excellent. That was one of my favorite things that night. Love Shine and Drift Away. And I believe that part ended with Don't Go Away, Mad, Just Go Away, because I see it here on the set list. I want to say that that was part of that. But who knows? Maybe they went back to full electric by then. It's it's possible. Uh, So after that, uh, the last two songs were Hammered and Primal Scream. So yeah, that was the show. I thought it was excellent, so I enjoyed myself a lot. It was loud as hell, and Karabi sounded excellent. Mick Mars never sounded better. It was cool to see Mick just being able to be turned loose. Didn't have to do any rhythm tracks. He just soloed the shit out of everything that night. So, yeah, great rock and roll show. Damn shame there's not a good live album slash, you know, VHS DVD to really, you know, see how great this show was. I don't think they'll ever put anything like that out, ever. If they have anything in the vaults, they're going to keep it hidden away forever. It's very sad. But I can dream. Uh, So here you go. I don't have anything live to play for you to close out the show. But uh, this was one of the songs they played. And it was just awesome. Great to hear it live. And Les Karabi does another uh, tour where he plays the 94 album, Top to Bottom. I would love to see it. I never got to see one in Dallas. But uh, yeah, maybe someday I'll get to hear this song live. So here you go. Closing off Volume 2 of my concert chronology. This is Motley Crue with Smoke the Sky. volume 2 of my personal concert chronology, that was Motley Crue the John Karabi version with Smoke the Sky off of the self-titled Motley Crue album from 1994, I think that record is great, it's also as a production nerd, one of the great sounding records of all time, like the mix on it is the best, one of the best headphone albums, car stereos, I mean that thing is just excellent so hats off to everybody involved Bob Rock of course, yeah there you go alright So that's me. That's uh, 1992 through 1994 of my personal history of concerts right here. So hope you enjoyed the new stories and hope you enjoyed this episode and all the songs. Uh, Until we meet again, stay tuned for my better half, Nola, and the best outro song in the business.
0: We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, we give our cat Willow an extra treat. We are on Twitter at RockStrikes10, and the direct email is rockstrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have RockStrikes10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high-quality, soft-as-heck, next-level branded shirt, and a button. Send us an email or direct message us for more details or to order. U.S. or APO boxes only, for now. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all of the episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going back all the way to episode number one. While you're on cnjradio.com, please check out our other quality shows, including... The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative. The Last Theater, starring Chris, where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. Talking Rock, with Joey and the great Mark Striegel of Talking Metal. And the I Am Vinyl Podcast, with Pete LaRussa and Occasionally Joey. Last but not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete Larusa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebookcom spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 set ya. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun.